Welcome to FRT, I'm Brad Carr of the IF in Washington, and today we're talking open banking. We're joined by two great experts. Firstly, we have Linda Cheng, Visiting Scholar on Financial Technology at Georgetown University, and she's also the Global Head of Policy and Special Counsel at Transparent Financial Systems. Linda was previously at the Fed and chaired the Bowl Committee's Task Force on Open Banking, and indeed she joined us on FRT back in January 2020 on episode 57, discussing a Bowl report that she had just led on that topic. And Andreas Wahlbergstock is the Head of Strategy for the Office of the CTO at City. Andreas is also another FRT veteran. He joined us back on episode 14 when we were at the IIF Digital Finance Symposium in Brussels in 2018, and as well as appearing in quite a number of our conferences and webinars uh, over that time, he's been one of the most prominent thought leaders in the IIF community. So delighted to have you both with us, Linda and Andreas. Welcome back to FRT. Thanks, Brad. It's great to be here. Thank you. Such a pleasure. And of course, the specific reason that we're hosting you both today is the book, the book Open Banking, edited by Linda. And Andreas and I were both privileged to be amongst the many authors uh, of different chapters within that book. So we're going to talk about some of those chapters and some of the key themes and the takeaways. And Linda, I'll, I'll get you perhaps towards the end to, to uh, enlighten our listeners as to whereabouts and, and how they can buy it. But perhaps firstly, and, and Andreas, if you don't mind me starting here with, with Linda, Linda, I was wondering if we could sort of recap a little bit on you know, what's happened since that time, since you joined us back in January 2020. In fact, I think you and I were having coffee at uh, Swings Coffee on uh, on 14th Street in DC, not meaning to do a product placement, but a, a local business here in DC. And uh, we were there right at the time that the, the Bail Committee uh, report was published, and you then kindly joined us on FRT. Seems a long time ago, What's even though it's not. What's, what's new since then, and, and what has Linda Jing been doing? Well, you know, um, in addition to the global pandemic, um, <laughs> many things have been um, happening in the fintech world at large. The report uh, released by the Basel Committee spurred me uh, on a personal quest to dive deeper into issues uh, surrounding open banking at the Fed and other bank supervisors. Um, you are limited to looking at open banking from a bank supervisory safety and soundness perspective. But open banking is really about how financial services is transforming in the face of big data. And uh, I've wanted to study data rights data issues um, that uh, impact competition, economics of data, like all of these issues are uh, many times uh, outside the purview of, of central banks and bank supervisors. So um, that's how I ended up uh, at uh, Georgetown Law, where uh, in academia I can look at and study all these issues in a more holistic way. And uh, while at Georgetown, I ended up joining a payment startup that's developing a blockchain-based digital dollar payment solution. And having now one foot in industry, I'm seeing how there is a convergence between open banking and crypto, which is just fascinating for me because uh, these two uh, movements are really manifestations of decentralization, in my opinion. And um, I think they will ultimately uh, converge. And that's when we're going to probably see like a very um, deeply transformative change in, in financial services. That's a really interesting take. And, and I think we often hear, and I think we often discuss how 
open banking is such a multifaceted issue and it leads into these different areas of data privacy, data protection and data ownership, as well as competition, uh, a number of the issues that you've alluded to there. And, and maybe if I can take that as a little bit of a, or, or offer that as a bit of a segue for you there, perhaps, Linda, if we turn to the book and and perhaps if you could give us an outline of some of those different strands and how you've brought those together in this book uh, and how that sort of sits in, in the way that, that you view the, the breadth of topic coverage across the book. Yes, um, be happy to. So uh, when I led the Basel Committee Working Group on Open Banking, I discovered, well, firstly, I knew very little about open banking. Open banking was something that was uh, actually pushed by competition authorities in a number of jurisdictions. So there was very little knowledge amongst bank supervisors at the time. And now that bank supervisors are, are becoming more familiar with it, I'm finding that policymakers, especially here in the States, are not very familiar with even the term open banking, even though most Americans benefit um, from open banking services today. And I thought, well, if this is the case, I think it's really important to help educate and inform policymakers, regulators, lawyers, people in industry, and um, Americans at large about, you know, what is open banking? How are we participating in the open banking ecosystem? And um, what are some ways forward that can help build a more robust open banking financial system that serves the needs of consumers? So I, I thought of that book on open banking, discussing the key themes um, impacted by the sharing of personal financial data would be helpful in this regard. So uh, the chapters um, that are all um, thematic with deep dives um, into, you know, what are consumer um, data protections and data rights uh, that can help support an open banking ecosystem? and the consumers that participate in um, that ecosystem. What are uh, customer liability protections for not only consumer, but also the banks in the fintechs involved in um, offering the services? You know, what are um, the artificial intelligence machine learning factors that we should consider in how big data is uh, processed? Um, in light of anti-discrimination laws, and um, onwards to, you know, what is data exactly, and how does it behave economically, and um, potentially under, you know, competition law. And then, very interestingly, looking at how are other jurisdictions approaching open banking. You know, in the UK and the EU, they're requiring that banks share payments-related data with uh, authorized third-party providers, um, whereas in other jurisdictions like this, like Singapore, um, the authorities are encouraging data sharing, but they're not mandating it. And then, you know, looking at Australia, which is a, a fascinating um, example of um, not only open banking, but really open data, um, the sharing of data across multiple economic sectors, it all reflects upon how we as uh, nations are becoming more data-driven economies and that our economies are becoming increasingly based on the power um, of data 
as uh, valuable assets. And data, though, itself is quite different from any other kind of asset that we've probably used in the past. So, you know, that common saying of data is the new oil. Yes, in some ways, because it's powering economies or, or we're hoping that it will come to power bigger parts of our economy. But data behaves quite differently economically than, than, say, oil, because it's something that can be used over and over again, or it can be used simultaneously by multiple parties, or more importantly, it can be combined with other sets of data and become you know, um, economically valuable in other ways. And so we have uh, laws and regulations that have not caught up to this new um, reality. And so I'm really hoping um, this book can be, can be helpful in this discourse. I think a couple of the sections of the book you've alluded to there, the, the uh, economics of data, there's a very interesting chapter there from a couple of our good friends at the IMF, Yan Carrier Swallow and, uh, and Bikram Haksar, uh, which we might pick up. But also, as you described there, Linda, the differing models that are emerging in different parts of the world, in different jurisdictions. Uh, and I think the book offers a great snapshot of where a number of those differing models are at and their own characteristics, which I think is a really important feature. Andreas, I was wondering if we could bring you into the, the conversation at this point and, and perhaps you know, your reflections looking across the book and looking across the various strands of, of the open banking discussion matter generally. We'll turn to your chapter in just a second, but more at that holistic view, particular things that, that stand out or most resonate with you. I would say things are moving really fast, not just on the data front, but in terms of DeFi, digital assets, the whole crypto universe that is opening up. And it's really interesting to think forward to how the concepts behind open banking, the idea that people ought to be able to share the data that their personal activity, their personal finances generate with third parties of their choice, how that maps to a world which, for the most part, is supposed to be either anonymous or pseudonymous, and how do you map the two things so that any open access that people begin to gain in the traditional finance uh, universe, and hopefully many other related and unrelated industries, how that all of that doesn't end up being segregated from a whole separate universe of new data in the DLT slash crypto world. So I think this topic of uh, open banking and what Linda has built with this book is is probably more like a foundational layer, but I I can already see the uh, third, fourth, fifth editions coming up as we keep up with how everything is changing so quickly. Absolutely. It is such a dynamic space. And, and one of the great challenges in writing a book or compiling a book like this is the risk that things are dated by the time that they actually hit publication. Uh, and I think, Linda, you've done a terrific job of, of ensuring that we're, we're current and, uh, and relevant to the world of, of today in, in 2021. As you say, uh, Andreas, that it is a dynamic world and, and one that we'll need to keep pace with. Andreas, could we delve a little bit further into your chapter? I think you and I actually bookended the book. I think you did the first chapter and I did the last one. And, and you opened the book with the, the first chapter on open banking ecosystem and infrastructure, banking on openness. And I was wondering if you could uh, share at a high level, uh, perhaps, you know, just some of the key themes that, that really uh, were the focus for, for you and what you've covered in that chapter. Of course, what that first chapter does, and yes, we do bookend 
the the collection overall. What that first chapter does is it tries to paint the frame of what open banking is, where it came from, and in very simple terms, how it is just the latest step in an evolution that started, and you know this is really simple, but you used to have to go into the bank branch in order to do business, and then you were able to just walk buy and grab anything you needed from an ATM out on the street. Eventually, banking made its way into the home online, uh, eventually into our pockets with our smartphones, and then it it became wearable with uh, Apple Watch and, and similar devices. That wasn't the end of the story because it then went through the wormhole and dematerialized into being present wherever you spend your digital life. In other words, no longer do people have to come to a bank property. The bank goes out and tries to meet them where useful and when timely in other environments. And so that evolution, which leads to banking going from being an in-person and and pretty sort of tangible physical activity to being something completely intangible and ubiquitous, is what we are mapping as the journey of open banking, where the uh, the conclusion we try to draw is that for this to achieve maximum potential in terms of your ability as a consumer to share data with third parties of your choice, you should not just be able to do that as regards your banking data, but other domains where data, if accessible on the same basis, could make for incredibly useful and intriguing combinations. And uh, if you had the same sort of access that we're positing for bank data, but for your online commerce, for your searches on major e-retailers, for your energy consumption patterns, for your movement, for your social media activities, the likes you give, the people you befriend, you know, who you spend the most time online with, all of these things, imagine if with the same lens that we apply to open banking, you were able to pull data from all those other domains and have very smart people combine all of that, how much value you would get for your life. Andreas, I think where I conclude the book, and we'll come to that uh, in a moment, I pick up a lot of that, that same sort of theme, although I, I probably put more of a competition lens on it. But to your theme of, of where uh, this ability to share data across different walks of life uh, is so prominent, it, it makes me think a lot of the referendum that we saw in Massachusetts a year ago. Uh, one of those things that sat in the background on, on election day behind the, the much higher profile issues, of course, but the Right to Repair Act there, uh, which passed overwhelmingly with a 75% majority, despite huge amounts of money from around the country flowing into that campaign, enshrined that the the telematics data in your vehicle belongs to you and not to the vehicle manufacturer, and that it is your right to go and take that data to whichever repairer you might wish. That really was, to my mind, essentially the same principle of, of open banking customer data ownership being applied in that case to a, a different walk of life. But it fits, I think, with your theme and, and also, at the same time, the reminder for, for banks and for insurers that we need to be thinking about the customer's preferences and how the customer wants to do business and how the bar for that has really been raised a lot through uh, through the pandemic experiences. I think that's that's a great uh, that's a great connection that you just drew there because 
if we are saying that consumers ought to be entitled to safely and responsibly share their banking data with third parties of their choice, how much more does that apply when you are talking about data coming from services that are nominally free because consumers are actually paying with their data? And so that makes it even more unidirectional and it, in my mind, you know, more of a, a target for saying, hey, why can't we have that data as well since we've built it? Yeah, so uh, if I may add, the genesis of the book was at last year's DC FinTech Week hosted by Georgetown Law. And uh, there I uh, moderated a panel, Open Banking, to which I invited um, Andres. And after which I asked him if he would be interested in contributing a chapter to this book project. We were deep in discussion, um, standing out in the lobby, and I still remember this. We felt really strongly in the promise of open banking, but in order for open banking to be successful, we need to have a baseline in consumer data protections and data rights. Currently in the U.S., we don't have such a framework of data protections. Um, we have kind of a patchwork including uh, Section 1033, the Dodd-Frank Act, which gives customers the right to ask their banks for data the bank's holding about them. But 1033 doesn't include the right to take your data with you. So if the customer wants to take the data to another, uh, say, a fintech they want to work with, they cannot. And um, there are a number of other basic um, data rights uh, that other jurisdictions have adopted, but we haven't considered yet um, here in the U.S. I recall that uh, DC FinTech Week session, and I remember actually one of Andreas's fellow panelists made the, uh, the assertion during the discussion that nobody is trying to rule out all forms of uh, screen scraping. And I had to make the uh, intervention from the uh, the audience that actually quite a number of us are, quite a number of us are distrusting of, of uh, screen scraping, which of course was one of the other big subjects that your uh, VAL committee report made a, a big focus on in terms of the security protocols as well, Linda. Yes. One of the chapters actually dives into, you know, how can we reduce screen scraping? And one way is to develop common API standards. And, you know, there's been quite a work done in this space and every uh, jurisdiction um, has uh, been developing their own set of st API standards. Uh, so uh, um, you know, for those who are uh, interested in this topic, um, it would actually make a very big difference for banks, especially community banks, if they want to be able to participate fully in um, the wave of financial innovation um, if they actually have the tools that, you know, for fintechs be able to plug into them. Linda, we'll, we'll sort of continue stepping through the book a bit in, in chronological order because uh, I'll come to, to my chapter last. But before we do, you know, we've started to allude to some of these other issues about the security. I, I mentioned the friends at the IMF, Yarn and, and Vikram, the, the economics of data chapter they'd done. You mentioned at the outset uh, about some of the different sort of national specific chapters that I think gave a, a great outline of where uh, each of these different approaches are at. But could I give you the opportunity? I don't know if there's another chapter or two or, or particular pieces within the book that you'd just like to take a moment to highlight here. 
There are two chapters that I think are are worth mentioning. There is a chapter uh, by Nick Carter on open banking or open finance and DeFi. Um, so, you know, he explores how uh, open banking and DeFi will converge over time and um, how uh, that will play out. So I think that that is a, a very forward-looking chapter. And another very interesting chapter is on digital identity, open banking to open finance to open data. All of that really also depends on um, having digital identity solutions that, uh, that can serve as foundation for a robust uh, open data economy and uh, how we go about developing digital identity is still very much up in the air. You know, whether it should be uh, digital identity issued by government or digital identity um, provided by private businesses such as banks and, you know, Visa, MasterCard, you know, which already know quite a bit about the consumers, or should they be, you know, self-sovereign digital identities where um, it's um, up to the consumer to decide how to construct his or her um, digital identity. So uh, I think these two chapters are, are, are very interesting. The, the digital identity topic uh, I'm especially interested in, and it's been a big area for us at the IF with our work with the Open ID Foundation together on the, uh, the Open Digital Trust Initiative. and. We certainly see that there's an opportunity for banks, but also telcos or energy re retailers or any other firm that corporates and consumers are willing to trust. But in, in the case where those firms can be uh, sources of identity verification, because I don't think the consumer, even when we are relying on things that are ultimately from a government source, consumer doesn't necessarily want their social security number or their passport number or their driver's license number being freely passed around every time they make a, a relatively minor transaction. I think there's a great opportunity for, whether it's a bank or a telco, to play the role of being able to be the verifier. Uh, and the use case that we've talked a lot about in, in our work with the OpenID Foundation is where if I'm buying something that has an age restriction, whether that's alcohol or a lottery ticket or whatever, rather than me passing raw data around to, to validate myself, the idea that the vendor could instead have me authorise them to say, yes, Citibank can go and tell you that, yes, Brad is over 21. And in that case, Citibank or Bank of America or something there, they're not passing the raw information on my behalf. They're rather answering a direct question around the specific attribute that I've given them the permission to opine on. So I think of a lot of the work that, that we and the OpenID Foundation and the uh, the OpenID Exchange in the UK and others are working on is, is very much trying to, to continue this principle that the consumer is in control of, of determining which attributes are shared, where and how and, and with whom. Uh, and I think there is an opportunity for, for banks, given the extensive KYC and AML work that they've already done, um, to be at the forefront of that environment. But it should be an open environment that, that uh, all uh, are able to participate in. That probably also segues a little bit to then if, if I can take my turn and, and talk about my chapter, which was uh, at the end of the book, Open Banking to Open Data and Beyond. And I, and I do allude to this point with identity. But it's also uh, where I, I started by reflecting on, I think, the twin objectives originally of open banking. You're one of empowering customers with their data, but also of, of trying to increase competition. And certainly in the early days in the UK, I think that was articulated very clearly as a as an ambition of open banking uh, and also as a means in the post-crisis years of 
trying to address the, the too big to fail and provide opportunities for, for smaller firms, whether it's the challenger banks or, or fintech startups. And I might be a little bit of a contrarian here, particularly to the, the enthusiasm about DeFi uh, that you've talked about there, Linda. But I see open banking playing out well in terms of empowering customers. And I'm actually quite concerned about how it's playing out in terms of, of competition. And I actually think it may run counter to DeFi and actually lead to the new centralization. And this is picking up a, a point that uh, we've talked about in other fora around the structural asymmetries between sectors. Uh, and I think the growing concerns about the dominance of the big techs, which has even become a, a bigger issue this year where we've seen the BIS with a series of publications and the US executive order on competition. So I think there is a, a notion here we need to be very cognizant of. I, uh, I cite in the chapter some great work by Manju Puri of, of Duke University in the FDIC. And I thought it was really fascinating analysis she did looking at the level of, of accuracy in credit assessment. If you, on one hand, just have the traditional credit bureau metrics that banks have of your payment history, your income, working out your loan serviceability, your asset base, or alternatively, assessing you on the basis of what she termed your digital footprint, being things like what operating system you use, what time of day you log in, whether you use your work email address or your Gmail, whether you type in capitals or, or not. And a point that she and her colleagues' analysis showed was that actually both of those methods gave you a pretty similar level of accuracy, actually slightly better with the digital footprint, but that you really got a quantum leap uplift when you were able to put those two different data sets together. And this is what I see in the, the current form of open banking in, in a number of jurisdictions where I can tell my bank, go and share my data with Google or with Facebook or with whoever it might be, but I can't do the inverse. And so open banking in that sense becomes an enabler for those tech firms to take your financial data and put it together with the speed that you read out on your Kindle and what you, what you search for and who your social media networks are. But it doesn't give the opportunity for anybody else to do that. And that's where I guess I have that, that contrarian concern, perhaps, that this is not DeFi, this is actually centralization. Uh, and that rather, we need to actually take open banking further, and we need to go beyond that to, to open data, and that we need to give consumers those opportunities to be able to share their data with anybody across sectors, empowered by the consumer, enabled by secure APIs, but that it not just be banking. Uh, and we pick up and link here a little bit here to some of those other chapters that you've alluded to, Linda, where... In some markets, that's starting to happen. You know, I think Singapore is, is probably the leader in taking it in that direction. Australia's made some signals in that direction, but it's a, a staged or staggered implementation before it'll get there. But I think that's a, a really, I think, a really notable piece of the puzzle that open banking today or open banking so far to date is not necessarily going to enable competition in a, a tech-enabled world in the way that we might hope. Rather, we actually need to take it further and take it to open data if we are to, to realise some of those competition objectives. So that was my piece and my thoughts, and, and you've generously included that as the closing thoughts to the book in that final chapter, Linda. But I should pause there and let uh, Linda and, and then Andreas, perhaps, if, if either of you could react and tell me the things I got right or wrong in that assessment. Andreas, would you like to go first? Sure. I, I was thinking, in summary whether it's from the perspective of what consumers stand to gain from open data as a superset of open banking, or whether it's from a competition perspective that creating a one-way street where data flows out of the banking system, but never in from other equally or even more important domains, 
uh, neither is a uh, a great approach. And so, again, I think the case for thinking beyond open banking and figuring out how to go to open data, it seems inevitable, but it needs to be made to happen at the same time. Yes. And to build on that, it is such a fascinating topic. We probably could spend all day on it. Um, the manifestation of the forces of decentralization are seen very clearly with open banking. I mean, we're, we're seeing the unbundling of some of the um, delivery of services that are then rebundled onto platforms. And, and Brad, in your chapter, you know, you're calling that platformization. I'm seeing that happening in crypto through DeFi. And, you know, there the forces are not only decentralization, but more importantly, the disintermediation and point of the, these DeFi systems is then to re-platformize those services on, on these platforms. And I'm seeing, you know, some jurisdictions are attempting to put some regulations on platforms like the EU, for example, um, came out with a proposal for Digital Asset Market Act as well as the Digital Asset Services Act, and they are, you know, attempting to update their e-commerce directive. But more importantly, they're trying to figure out how to regulate big tech. And sometimes I, I see that it's a, a shame that many policymakers tackle big tech without looking at what are the connections to financial services, or they're trying to regulate financial services without seeing the connection to big tech and big data. And, you know, at least um, this week, the BIS hosted a symposium on, you know, how to regulate big tech. So I think they're focused on this issue, but generally it's just not thought of together, you know, and even when it comes to say consumer data rights, there's a, a lot of work going on um, over in, say, the Senate Judiciary Committee or the Senate Commerce Committee about data rights with regards to the internet and big tech, but without realizing that there's also a set of data protections under GLEBA over in the financial services world. And I think in the end, we're going to have to start looking at this all comprehensively and, and make sure that we connect the dots. Linda, if I can build on that very briefly, I think what you're pointing to is a necessary shift in the regulatory lens from an entity focus, in other words, who are we regulating, to an activity focus. Same activity, same regulation, doesn't matter what the taxonomy is, what the type of entity is. If they're doing X, then we should regulate those outcomes, not based on the, the nature of the actor, right? Yes. Yes, and I'm teaching crypto right now in my law class and, and trying to explain, you know, there are forces of centralization and that you'll see um, in crypto land. And then there's also forces of decentralization. And then ultimately, how are our entities-based regulations applicable? And, you know, where things are decentralized, it becomes much more difficult. But... That is very much where we're heading right now um, as an economy as a whole. <laughs> and and uh, I don't think, uh, you know, as a lawyer, uh, I can safely say that, you know, our, our laws were written 
a long time ago, and uh, some of our laws were written more recently, say in the 70s, like our Electronic Fund Transfers Act. But some of our laws, like the Sherman Act, you know, in, uh, for antitrust were written back in the late 1800s. So uh, quickly uh, shifted into this new world uh, where our lives are increasingly uh, digitized. And so we as a country need to think very seriously about, all right, what are our values and what data, what personal data do we think is important to protect while also balancing the need um, to provide services and benefits that leverage uh, personal data. And I think that ties into to one of the great uh, regulatory policy questions of our time, uh, which is around where financial regulation and data regulation and other areas of tech regulation, how those all intersect, because they do invariably intersect in our key areas of economic activity now, but the traditional mandates of regulators are not necessarily aligned to that. And so there is this, I feel a bit of a conundrum myself in that on one hand, there is some urgency to confront that. And at the same time, we need to be patient, I think, and tolerant of the regulators themselves who are grappling with that problem and who are handed those mandates and those historical pieces of legislation that were aimed in different ways that they themselves are, are now having to grapple with and work with. It's a, it's a great conundrum that all are facing. Although when we take it into an international context and in areas where we'd like to see greater international consistency and international cooperation, I think it has to be said that financial regulators have probably a better record than their peers in most other sectors. And where a lot of these issues do extend beyond just the realm of the financial regulator, at least I think the financial regulators are probably the best place to lead and to champion that to, to some of their other, other colleagues. Linda, perhaps to close, I think we've probably captured a number of the, the great uh, and very multifaceted themes that, that come together in the book. But I want to give you the opportunity, of course, to, to do your publishers proud and tell our audience where and how and, and when they can buy this book. Brad, thank you. So the book is called Open Banking, edited by Linda Jing, and you can find it either on Amazon or on Oxford University Press website. And on Amazon, can I ask the question for those of us that are perhaps the new early adopters or the tech freaks or whatever, can we get it on Kindle or, or is it only in physical hardback form? You can get it on Kindle. Well, encourage everyone to do that. Uh, as we've said, it's it's really, I think, the, the great snapshot of where open banking and open data is today. As we've discussed, it's going to evolve over time. It's a dynamic space, but it's a great way to, to understand where this space is at today. And also how it has got there, which I think is a really important part of the, the story as, as well. So, Brad, I wanted to uh, stress how due to the you know, multifaceted interdisciplinary nature of open banking, this also means that policymakers should also become well-versed in the different issues that are touched upon by open banking. And so um, after I left the Fed um, for Georgetown, um, I wrote an opinion piece for OMFID arguing that central banks should become data fluent, if that makes any sense. Because it's, it's an area that central bankers are not naturally familiar with, but it's very important that they start to understand how data works in an economy if they care about the growth of economies, right? And start thinking about what a national data strategy ought to be um, and how that interacts with the economy. And then how financial institutions um, plug into that economy. 
Absolutely, I definitely echo that, and uh, we've often cited you know comments from from leading innovative regulators like Ravi Menon at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, who's talked about the need to improve digital international cooperation and whether we need a, a digital Bretton Woods and the like. And certainly, you know, I think the leadership from people like Ravi really tells that story of the forward-leaning regulators in finance are the ones who are getting themselves across the, the data and technology issues that you allude to. And, uh, and Linda, the book is a, another great contribution to the body of knowledge that helps to, to enable that. So thank you, Linda. Thank you, Andreas. Great to have you both back with us on FRT. Thanks again for having joined us. Thank you. Yes, and thank you, Brad and Andreas, for contributing to this book. Thank you for allowing us to. And Brad, thank you also for all the work you've been doing in this domain over the years. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to be involved and, uh, and to be part of such a, a great publication there with, with Linda. And if I can quickly just flag ahead on FRT, we're actually also going to talk about another great book, uh, which Linda has also contributed to, in fact, this one edited by Bill Cohen, the former Secretary General of the Bail Committee. His book, RegTech, SubTech and Beyond, Innovation in Financial Services. And we're going to discuss that one with Bill and also with my colleague, Natalie Bailey, who contributed a chapter on artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, to Bill's book. I'm also going to speak with Steve Suarez, who was recently promoted at HSBC to their Global Head of Innovation for Global Functions. Steve's going to talk us through a fascinating transformation program that he, he's run at HSBC. And we'll probably also compare notes on the journey with AI in financial services, tracking back to when Steve and I co-presented on one of the IEF's earliest machine learning surveys back to the Bale SIG meeting some years ago. And we're also going to look at cloud and a fascinating recent report by Google Cloud on adoption across the industry. And Chester Chua is going to talk about that one with my colleague, Dennis Ferenc. So please join us for those discussions and much more on FRT. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening.